When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. I'm Sadie, and welcome back. Today, I have the pleasure to talk about my monthly pick for another unknown or unsung woman artist from history. Hooray. Hooray. Who are we learning about? Well, we are adding an opera singer to the More Than Amuse roster, and I realized we have not covered an opera singer. No, we haven't. We've covered a lot of women composers, a lot of women in classical music, music critics, but we actually haven't ever fully focused on an opera singer and a singer. So I'm excited to do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. In college, I did classical music and vocal performance for a time. I was in an opera. I was in another like opera scenes. It was a lot of fun, but I always felt like a major poser (laughs) because (laughs) I just I did not know anything about famous opera singers or (laughs) famous people at all. It was like, you know, and like I feel like as a high school theater kid, I always felt very insecure because it it just seemed like some people like knew about Broadway and mm. I never was that type. I just like to sing and act on stage. And I felt like this is how it was when I was in my vocal performance program for a couple of years. I was like, oh, wait, people really love this. And I did not know anything. So <laughs> well, that makes perfect sense. I yeah. remember, especially in high school, like I loved theater. I did theater all the time growing up. But mm-hmm. once you're in a class with a bunch of people, they're like, I'm going to be a professional actor or actor. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, different. we're on different wavelengths. Yeah. I'm going to be a graphic designer. This is for fun. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. That's so I get that. how I was too. Because in college, I mean, I definitely sought out vocal performance and I wanted to do it. But at the same time, I knew I wasn't trying to be a opera singer. So that yeah, it's sense. just different ways of approaching the art form granted though it's a beautiful art form it's so much fun and it is rewarding and I feel like that's what I attribute what healed my own stage anxiety and performance anxiety was doing opera and classical music because I feel like it's almost like once you get on stage in a big poofy gown or do like do something crazy and you're singing like in German or Italian and like really crazy high notes. Now when I go on stage just to like sing my own songs, I'm like, that's easy. Like in comparison (laughs) to like putting on a junior recital of French, German and like opera, which is something that was so out of my own comfort zone. Everything else is just, it just is a little bit easier after that. So no, that makes total. it was all part of my own journey as an artist (laughs) and a musician. And it was lots of fun. I do have to say though, I have heard your opera voice at a competition thing. I was with you. Yeah. That's so random. Why were you there? I don't know. 
but you were there. there. Yeah, I remember (laughs) now. And then also, I went and saw your opera. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you have a very good opera voice. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, it's so fun. I loved it. You did a a part of it in your Welcome to the Opera song, didn't you? I did. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I swear we will talk about the artist. Actually, it will be (laughs) a bulk of this episode, I swear. But, yes, I only do pop music now. But I do have a song called Welcome to the Opera. And what did I do in the last chorus? Well, we we did it we belted out those high notes and yes so you can hear those tucked in go listen to the opener of my ep it's very fun and dramatic so well anyways so today (laughs) we are talking about maria collis who was a american greek soprano who is one of the most renowned and influential opera singers of the 20th century she was really cool to learn about but she was someone where there is so much about her and so much scandal and just so many crazy stories that it's almost like one of those things where it's like how have I not heard this or known these stories at all before but then with also with preparing this episode it was like there is so much I could say that I know I'm not going to touch on all of it at all so if you are interested in this or her and learning about her there's so much more out there there's a whole documentary that I didn't get the chance to watch it's not on a streaming service I think it's on like stars if you have that Hulu extension but nothing immediate but it was really cool to learn about her because like I said we haven't done an opera singer yet Ooh, I feel like whenever you hear like the typical like that opera sound and there's like a certain woman voice who sings it I feel like it's Maria Callas. Like in the trailer for the documentary, I just heard her singing in the background. I'm like, oh, that's like the recording that's like in oh, all okay. the movie. You know what I mean? Like her voice She's is like very distinct. She's like the opera voice. That's kind of what I am guessing. I hope no opera singers are listening to this and being like, no, you're wrong and stupid. Sorry if that's <laughs> the case. But for me and from like my outside view of the opera world, hearing her sing, I was like, oh, this is the opera voice. Like this is the one that I was like, I've heard this before. It's like almost in the movies now that it's just made it so recognizable. But like I mentioned, she was one of the most renowned and influential opera singers and many critics praised her bel canto technique, her wide ranging voice and dramatic interpretations. Her musical and dramatic talents led her to being called La Davina or the divine one. Ooh. So it was almost like she was so good that they were like, this is, this is unworldly. Like this is from God himself. The press exulted in publicizing her temperamental behavior, her supposed rivalry with another opera singer named Renata Tibaldi, and her love affair with Greek shipping tycoon Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> that is a name. Aristotle Onassis, <laughs> isn't it though? I feel like she's the original like diva from the press. She was also pitted against another woman opera singer. Her love affairs were more speculated on than her artistry. It's like... Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm so sorry, everyone. I am going to be making this parallel. It's like a Taylor Swift of the opera world, okay? Okay. Yes, I. that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. Or maybe like the Mariah Carey of the opera world could be a better... Mm. Or maybe it's just that history has a way of focusing on women's behavior and pitting them against each other and their love lives. Like maybe that's actually it, is that we still have not stopped. And this was happening in the 40s and 50s of the 20th century. So... 
look at us. We've come not far at all, apparently. <laughs> I feel like we tend to see that every time. Every time. <laughs> wow, we have not progressed as a society. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I'm so disappointed in us. Awesome. Yeah. Her dramatic and her personal tragedy have often overshadowed her as the artist in the popular press, but her artistic achievements are obviously such a big deal. Leonard Bernstein called her the Bible of opera, and her influence is so enduring that in 2006, Opera News wrote of her, quote, nearly 30 years after her death, she's still the definition of the diva as artist and still one of classical music's best-selling vocalists. She was yeah, amazing. That's awesome. And beyond her artistry, I mean, she was a celebrity, and she had some interesting scandals in her life and I will be talking about them but I don't want that to take away from the fact that she obviously was an amazing and beautiful artist and while you know in our episode in this podcast we won't necessarily have clips of her singing I would 1000% recommend just pulling it up there's so many videos of her performing out there and it's it's incredible she was truly mm -hmm. an incredible artist but to dive into her life, like I said, I'm not going to touch on everything. There actually was so much information on her just because of how big she was. Um, even just in the preview of the documentary, there is a clip of people just lined up waiting outside to see her and someone's interviewing a man and they're like, oh, like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, this is the only woman or like the only person I would camp out for. Like it's Maria Callas. Of course, I'm going to camp out all night to get the chance to hear her sing. So that's so cool. She was a celebrity. She was a huge international star. And yeah, it was a really big deal in the world of opera and just the world generally. But she was born in New York. Her birth certificate is Sophie Cecilia Kalos, but she was actually Christian christened as Maria Anna Cecilia Sophia. Oh, hold on. I think it's a Greek last name and I think it's Kalagropoulos. I checked my enunciation and as soon as I was here now, it's out the window. But she was born at the Flower Fifth Avenue Hospital on December 2nd of 1923 to two Greek parents, George and Litsa. Her father had shortened the longer surname first to Kalos and then to Kalos just to make it more manageable. There's a lot of stories of people who immigrated over throughout the 20s and 30s and them, you know, shortening their name to make it easier to pronounce to us to us Americans. But her parents had a really bad relationship. He didn't really have any interest in the arts and she was definitely the mom, I think one of those women who were like, wanted to be a part of high society, wanted to be like up in the arts and everything. And her husband wasn't really able to give that to her. Apparently when her mom's father, so her grandpa, met George, her father. He said, you will never be happy with him. If you marry that man, I will never be able to help you. Ooh. But they got married anyways, and it wasn't a great married. And their marriage was definitely not helped by his sexual relationships that he would have outside of his marriage. You know, like that usually doesn't help. It usually <laughs> doesn't help your marriage. <laughs> they had a daughter that was named Yakinthi. Yes. Okay. Later called Jackie. Then they had a son who was born in 1920, but he actually died from meningitis in the summer of 1922, which oh, is really sucks. tragic. So their marriage and family just wasn't in a great spot. 
1923, Lisa discovers that she's pregnant again, and George made the decision to move his family to the United States. I don't know if I mentioned this, but they were in Greece. Okay. Maria is a Greek-American. Lisa did not want to move to America, but they did They did do it. They moved to New York, July 1923, and they moved into like New York in the neighborhood in Queens. Lisa was actually convinced that her third child would be a boy. So she was very disappointed at the birth of her daughter, Maria. That's so sad. Yeah, and she was so disappointed that she would not even look at her new baby for four days. When Maria was four, George, her father, opened his own pharmacy and then they moved into Washington Heights in Manhattan. And that's where she grew up. But it was when she was three that it became clear that Maria had some musical talent. And once her mom discovered that her youngest daughter had a voice, she began pressing her to sing. Collis recalled, I was made to sing when I was only five and I hated it. George, her father was unhappy with his wife because his wife definitely favored the eldest daughter as well as put a lot of pressure on young Maria to sing and perform while Lisa was continuously and increasingly angry about the father's absences and infidelity and oftenly violently reviled him in front of their children and their marriage ended in a way that in 1937 Lisa decided to return to Athens with her two daughters which is Probably best in the long run, except her mom sucks. And I will talk about that now. So (laughs) I'm going to obviously skip a couple things here and mention things that happened later in her life. But this whole section is just about her relationship with her mother. They're in Greece at this point and the relationship with her mom, it's not good. It never is good. I mean, it started out with the mom obviously favoring the oldest daughter and saying, oh, but the youngest one that I hate can sing. So I'm going to use that to my benefit. And what's interesting, though, is it became like a public interest, their relationship and what it was like. There was actually a cover story in Time magazine in 1956, which focused on the relationship. And later, the mom released a book called My Daughter Maria Callis in 1960. Um, I just find that interesting that Time magazine did it like it's not like Us Weekly or People magazine, you know, or I I don't think those were around in the 50s, but like it was Time magazine. Like that's generally considered a pretty prestigious magazine or publication. And they were the ones that were reporting on her personal life with her mom, which I guess, like I said, I think it shows just how big of a star she was, but it's also like not fair like that shouldn't have been happening like I guess she was an opera singer so they're like oh this is highbrow that's kind of what I'm thinking too that it's not like they're reporting on pop stars they're like oh this is the classy art medium so we can talk about it in time magazine I don't know interesting but in public, Collis recalls the strained relationship with Lisa on her unhappy childhood spent singing and working at her mother's insistence. And she said, my sister was slim and beautiful and friendly, and my mother always preferred her. I was the ugly duckling, fat and clumsy and unpopular. It is a cruel thing to make a child feel ugly and unwanted. I'll never forgive her for taking my childhood away. During all the years I should have been playing and growing up, I was singing or making money. Everything I did for them was mostly good and everything they did 
did for me was mostly bad. Oh, and then in 1957, so I know she told a Chicago radio host um, and she said she said there must be a law against forcing children to perform at an early age. Children should have a wonderful childhood. They should not be given too much responsibility, which I think is something that is coming more in the conversation now but i thought it was Mm -hmm. really interesting to read of an instance where it's happening now in the 1950s or i remember when we did the maria anna mozart episode forever ago and we kind of talked about how her dad was like the original stage dad and yes i think this is like another example of that and with jeanette mccurdy's i'm glad my mom died that book i think that's been a subject that people have been talking about more on tiktok and and things like a lot of conversations about like family, family vloggers yeah. and everything mm-hmm. how it's like you're still making your children work yeah and how that's not ethical like I think it's a really important discussion and it is really sad that like from mm-hmm. Maria and Mozart to now we can draw a line of like parents exploiting their children for their yeah. monetary gain it's really yeah. sick yeah and also just how much time and time again we hear of kids who grow up and say that was bad I really wish that wouldn't have happened to me and then parents now of the future are still being like but it's fine if I do it like yeah they're like but my kid's fine and I'm careful with them and it's like you don't know like we don't know we don't have enough studies to test everything like you can't and really how many kids that start you know being famous or pursuing this at 10 years old they're like wow I'm really glad that I did that yeah. That really did nothing bad for me that my parents forced well, me into this career. Well, I think of like Britney Spears. Like she oh, started yeah. at like 16. Well, I mean, she was on Barney when she was like tiny. So I guess. But I mean, like her pop star career started when she was like a teenager. And even then, like it was so harmful. Like, and all of the things we've seen, it's been a bad and situation. And it's really sad too, the amount of child stars like it's the funny like well it's not it's not funny but people almost make fun of like oh the child star gone crazy when it's like it's not the child star's fault it is the parents fault that put them in Mm -hmm. that situation and it's it sucks that we don't hold the parents accountable for that it's like why does every single child star end up like addicted to drugs and having a terrible time yeah like oh i wonder i wonder (laughs) it's probably not their fault that they're in this situation because they were children they can't actually weigh the heaviness of the decisions that they're making and no. the impact that they'll have the and they shouldn't lives. have to that's not the kind of thing as a child should be worried about and she's every right like her mom stealing her childhood away from her like adding on the performing for money but then also like the body image issues yeah you have if your mom's constantly telling you that you're ugly yeah <laughs> it's horrible it's so bad what's even worse so According to both Carlos's husband and her close friends, she related to them that her mother, who actually did not work, by the way, but she would press her to go out with various men, mainly Italian and German soldiers, to bring home money and food during the Axis occupation of Greece during World War II. How old was she at this point? She'd have to have been in her late teens. Not okay. Not okay at all. Her friends said that she was convinced that Kala's main to remain untouched, but she never forgave her mother for what she perceived as a kind of prostitution that was forced on her. That is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Litsa herself, her mother, beginning in New York and continuing in Athens, had adopted a questionable lifestyle of herself that included not only pushing her daughters into degrading situations to support her financially, but also and entertaining Italian and German soldiers herself during this occupation. So basically she was forcing her daughters to hang out with Nazis for money. 
and to protect herself which that's because she wasn't willing to work herself so Um, like just a bad woman yeah yeah Apparently, later on in her career in 1950, she attempted to patch things up with her mother and they went on a trip together in Mexico. But then after that, they never met again. Whatever happened there wasn't good. There was a series of angry and accusatory letters from Lisa lambasting her father and husband. And after that, she ceased communication completely with her mother. In 1955, there was another, the Time story covered Collis's response to her mother's request for $100 for my daily bread, which is again, crazy that Time covered this, that her mom reached out to, you know, her her to say, hey, I need $100. But this reply from Maria says, don't come to us with your troubles. I had to work for my money and you are young enough to work too. If you can't make enough money to live on, you can jump out of the window or drown yourself. So she hated her mother. And then about that to kind of justify herself for saying such harsh words, she said, they say my family is very short of money. Before God, I say, why should they blame me? I feel no guilt and I feel no gratitude. I'd like to show kindness, but you mustn't expect thanks because you won't get any. That's the way life is. If someday I need help, I wouldn't expect anything from anybody. When I'm old, nobody is going to worry about me. So a very interesting horrible family situation that she was raised in and yeah I think that that kind of like sets I don't want to like say it sets the tone for her life necessarily but I think it's important to almost like keep in mind when it's like oh she was a drama queen oh she was involved in all these scandals it's like well this is like where she came from and then still what she managed to become despite where she came from and besides the point women are always deemed divas inappropriately yeah, it's like so. that happens to everyone regardless yeah of exactly whether or not they deserve it it's gotta be like a huge factor though and like that would harden you up harden fast yes from a very young age absolutely like, that would be really really tough mm-hmm. we're gonna transition away from the horribleness of her family for a while here. But she received her musical education in Athens. Her mother actually tried to enroll her at a prestigious Athens conservatoire without any success because at the time she was just untrained. And in the summer, though, of 1937, her mother visited Maria Travella at the Younger Greek National Conservatoire, asking her to take Mary, as apparently she was then called. So I assume as a child, she called her she was called Mary. And then once she like adopted the stage name, it turned into Maria. I'm assuming. Okay. Travella recalled her impression of Mary was a very plump young girl wearing big glasses for her myopia. Apparently she had really bad eyesight, which is just a funny thing that happens that became an issue because like it was a difficult for her to like see the cues from the conductors. So she oh. would just have to be like that much more memorized and things like that. She needed contacts bad. (laughs) Literally, yes. (laughs) Continuing what her teacher said, she said, the tone of the voice was warm, lyrical, intense. It swirled and flared like a flame and filled the air with melodious reverberations like a carolin. It was by any standards an amazing phenomenon, or rather it was a great talent that needed control, technical training, and strict discipline in order to shine with all of its brilliance. Which, wow, that is just speaking on her natural talent. And after hearing her in meeting her she worked with her and completely waived the tuition fees which i thought was really cool and then this is when she was called a dramatic soprano if you are not familiar with the vocal parts at all there's the normal ones that are in choir like soprano alto tenor bass but opera singers they generally have like 
other stages of like categorization where it's like you might be a soprano but are you a lyrical soprano are you a dramatic soprano and that just kind of like determines really how what your voice is or like where it shines the most and dramatic sopranos are generally the ones who are like getting the big songs i'm sure the name of it is it like gives it away phantom of the opera christine <laughs> level kind of yeah yeah yeah. actually okay. i wonder if technically i think so but like the big opera songs in the movies i almost guarantee there's like that's a dramatic soprano that you're hearing <laughs> as opposed to like sense. the other vocal parts where it's like oh it's a, a lighter a coloratura there's a lot of different you know different kinds okay. of sopranos I would have taken the time to define all the opera things, but then we would have had a really long episode. So you're fine. I didn't even know there was that many. Like I knew there was in between parts because I've heard of like a higher alto, lower alto, like a mezzo Mm -hmm. soprano, you know, like, yeah, but dramatic soprano, really? (laughs) But yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like defining what your vocal chords can do. Yeah. And I think that a big part of opera and I think from at least my perspective is they definitely categorize you and it's just to say this is what they can do best where it's like you probably technically can sing the other parts but like this is where you're going to shine and it's not necessarily like one is worse than the other it's just different but granted also certain voice types are more likely to be playing leading roles so maybe by that argument some voice types are better than others because you (laughs) want to be the big you know dramatic role but about maria as a student her instructor said that she was a model student fanatical uncompromising and dedicated to her studies heart and soul her progress was phenomenal she studied five or six hours a day within six months she was singing the most difficult arias in the international opera repertoire with the utmost musicality so she's very serious and very very like dedicated to it and I mean honestly there's just a lot about her education there's so many amazing quotes where it's like this D Hidalgo de Hidalgo is someone who she worked with a lot and he first time he heard her it was like tempestuous extravagant cascades of sound is yet uncontrolled but full of drama and emotion like just everyone who heard her was like, whoa, <laughs> that yeah. is a big deal. And then that to Hidalgo, he also said about her as a student, a phenomenon. She would listen to all my students, sopranos, mezzos, tenors, and she could do it all. Collins herself said that she would go to the conservatoire at 10 in the morning and leave with the last pupil, devouring music for 10 hours a day. When asked by her teacher why she did this, her answer was that even with the least talented pupil, he can do something that you, the most talented, might not be able to do. So I think that's cool that she was like, because there's something that I can learn from everyone. And even if they're deemed the least big deal, I'm still going to make sure I'm here to learn from them. But into her early career. So she had a lot of appearances as a student where she would just be in secondary roles at the Greek National Opera. And De Hidalgo, who was one of her instructors, he was instrumental in securing roles for her, allowing Collis to earn a small salary, which is actually really cool, but helped her and her family get through the difficult war years. But she made her professional debut in February of 1941 in the small role of Beatrice in Bochaccio. I'm so sorry, opera fans. (laughs) That one. Yep. And then a soprano who sang in the chorus later recalled, even in rehearsal, Maria's fantastic performing ability had been obvious. And from then on, the others started trying ways of preventing her from appearing. So people got jealous and people were kind of mean. Someone else recalled another soprano that used to, that certain The other singers used to stand in the wings while Collis was singing and make remarks about her, muttering, laughing, and pointing fingers at her. 
I know, it's so rude. But despite this, she continued to progress and she made her debut in a leading role in August of 1942 as Tosca, going on to sing the role of Marta at the Olympia Theater. And she was hit with just glowing reviews with critics declaring her an extremely dynamic artist possessing the rarest dramatic of musical gifts. Um, People were just jealous. (laughs) People were just jealous and like, oh my gosh. This person is amazing. Other quotes about her. This one says about her exceptional voice with its astonishing natural fluency. I do not wish to add anything to the words of Alexandra Laluini's where it's Callas is one of those God-given talents that one can only marvel at. Following those big debut performances, they started referring to her as the God-given. And for some time wow. watching Callas rehearse, there was a colleague who said, could it be that there is something divine that we haven't realized it? So like wow. people were so good that they were like, oh, cool. There's a God. <laughs> Gosh, can you imagine singing? And people are like, I now believe in religion. Yeah. Like, like what you're, the heck? you're a really talented singer. <laughs> if you are not even singing about God or like bearing testimony of it, but people are like, yeah, I believe in the divine now. I'm like, oh, Man. cool. It's that yeah, blows it's my mind then that people were able to be so mean Yes. When it's like, weren't you just in awe? Like, couldn't you just stand there and absorb it? Like, why do you have to be so rude? (laughs) Which I think just goes to show that, you know what? Sometimes if it feels like people are not giving you the credit you deserve, maybe they're just jealous. And sometimes that feels like almost like juvenile to say, but I feel like it's really real, especially Mm -hmm. in the world of arts where we're all kind of in competition with each other. And if you're someone who positions yourself or you don't even position yourself, you just are like maybe people are going to not treat you right. And that sucks. Yeah, that does suck. But after the liberation of Greece, she decided to go to America to see her father and to pursue her career there. She left Greece in 1945, just two months short of her 22nd birthday. And at that point, she had given 56 performances in seven operas and had appeared in around 20 recitals. She considers her Greek career as the foundation of her musical and dramatic upbringing, saying that when I get to the big career, there were no surprises for me. So basically, her education and time in Greece definitely prepped her for the rest of her career. She returned to the United States, reunited with her father, and she made the rounds of auditions. In December of that year, she auditioned for Edward Johnson, who was the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, and was favorably received. He said, exceptional voice ought to be heard on stage very soon. Kind of like interesting things here where Collis said that they offered her like the role of Madame Butterfly to be performed in Philadelphia, but that she declined feeling that she was actually like she didn't fit the look for Butterfly and she didn't want to sing it in English, but there Mm -hmm. wasn't any written evidence of it. Um, And then later the New York Post in an interview with Edward Johnson, who was the manager of it, said that confirmed that a contract was offered, but she didn't like it because of the contract, not because of the roles, but she was right in turning it down. It was frankly a beginner's contract. So I think what actually happened is they treated her as like a new person and she was like, no, I'm much more seasoned than this. I deserve better, which is cool. Fair, yeah. Mm -hmm. But in 1946, she was engaged to reopen the opera house in Chicago, but the company actually folded before opening, which would be seen as a failure, but this led to probably one of the biggest moments of her career. So there was another star in the opera who was aware that somebody else was looking for a dramatic soprano to cast in 
something that was going to be performed at the Arena di Verona, which is exactly what that sounds like, a big arena in Verona. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he recalled Maria Callas as being amazing. And so he recommended her for it because it was a big outdoor theater in Verona. So he figured that like who else would be better for that with such her big voice and the way she's so dramatically. So he recommended her to this person who was putting this on and apparently during her audition he was so excited that he jumped up and he joined Kalas in the act four duet so what he was just like so mesmerized during the audition that he got up and sang the rest of the song with her which I think is like that was probably a fun moment to to be a part of like gosh I bet the I can totally imagine it like a very enthusiastic like retired tenor who's like yeah. putting on his dream show in Verona and is just like, aha, here she is. And then just hopping up and singing <laughs> on stage with her or singing in the, whatever their audition was. I guess better in an audition than a performance. <laughs> True. Also, I'm sure that like, as someone who has been through many auditions in my life, if I was singing and the person who was trying to decide if I would make the cut or not jumped up and finished the song with me i'd be like okay cool i i got the part i think yeah i think that's this is true a good sign <laughs> yeah you wouldn't really be able to question it at that point you'll be like yeah. i'm pretty positive i'm pretty sure i got the role but it was in this role that she made her italian debut when she was there though she met someone named giovanni battista meneghini who was an older wealthy industrialist who began courting her and they were married in 1949 he actually assumed control of her career until 1959 and acted as her manager until their marriage broke apart um, 10 years later and it was though apparently his love and support that gave Collis the time needed to establish herself in italy and throughout the prime of her career she went by the name of maria meneghini Collis. so okay i'm assuming and hoping that that marriage was good but it seems like you know he was able to support her so she could really fully do it i guess that's good i always get so hesitant when it's like and they were their manager i'm like "Mm." Mm -hmm. no (laughs) i agree doesn't sound like a good situation i am with you i am always skeptical when i hear that as well but hoping in this case it was better person I'm spotlighting today is a stained glass artist. Ooh. Yes, which I love finding these because it puts me in complete awe. Um, it's called Spectra's Moon Shop. The work is all done by Ashley Bell. The username is just Spectra's underscore moon shop. Spectra's is spelled S-P-E-C-T-R-A-S. And my favorite thing that she has <laughs> is she makes these little UFO lamps. And then she puts little cows in them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And it is so cute because of course it looks like the little cows are being abducted. (gasps) I love it. Are you kidding me? (laughs) It's adorable. They are adorable. Yeah. So they're really cool because they look like super modern. Like it's just like a little UFO. She has them in different colors. But then when you look inside of like the beams coming down, she puts like these little cow figurines. That is the cutest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) It's really cute. That's not all she does. She obviously has a bunch of other things. She has like some mirrors and just like traditional stained glass like flat pieces for you to like hang in windows and stuff. I'm just really obsessed with the UFO lamps. (laughs) I am absolutely obsessed as well. (laughs) That is They're just really cute. And, like, the fun idea to put a cow in it, like, I never would have thought of that. But it's genius. No, not at all. 
So anyway, check it out. Her commissions are closed right now, but I know she does have a shop. It just works in like a drop system like we've talked about with many people mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they'll like do a bunch and then update as soon as they can. So, but cool. some keep your eyes on if you're in the mood for a little UFO lamp with a cow in it, which who isn't? Who is it? I, yeah, certainly. Excellent. Yeah. Point. Well, today I'm actually going to shout out one of my friends. Their Instagram is, you know, Cassandra. This is my friend Cassandra. Cassandra. She's is great. Is it you spelled out completely? Yep. Y-O-U. No, Cassandra. Like, you know, Cassandra. But she's, like I said, she's a friend of mine out here in Nashville. I'm shouting her out, though. It felt right because according to her bio, her vocal range is like a squeaky toy. But she does opera, but she also does pop. And it's very fun to see her videos on both she's actually like competing in the miss america pageants right now and is like miss music city trying to become miss tennessee i think in july and like her talent portion is her doing opera and it's really really incredible what she does and beyond that though she can sing you know she can also sing pop and she's also a great songwriter she also (laughs) side note sometimes she'll post her workouts and she posted an arm workout that was incredible so just follow Cassandra for all kinds of fun things. But uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, she's great. So <clears throat> and also, as I know her personally, I can I can attest to her wonderful personality. So, yeah, go follow, you know, Cassandra. That's awesome. This is just a you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Funny anecdote that I loved is... After she performed this, she didn't have any other offers immediately, but there was someone looking for someone to sing a certain role, um, Isolde, I think. And he called on her because she had told him that she already knew the score, when in reality, she had only looked at the first act out of curiosity (laughs) while at the conservatory. Apparently, she sight read the opera's second act for him (laughs) and he praised her for knowing the role so well but then afterwards she admitted that she totally bluffed and sight read the music and that made him even more impressed so he immediately cast her in the role (laughs) and then his name was seraphin and he afterwards served as her mentor and a really big supporter that holy crap (laughs) that is like an underrated talent right there being able to sight read that well that someone's like you know this really well and also like (laughs) opera music is not easy like those melodies are usually really crazy so the fact that she could sight read that it was that's insane yeah and he was by the way his name is tulio seraphine he was an italian conductor who had a really big deal career and they worked a lot together she actually recalled that working with him was the really lucky opportunity of her career because he taught me that there must be an expression that there must be a justification he taught me the depth of music the justification of music and that's where i really really drank all i could from this man so Hmm. A very great person in her corner. Continuing on with her career, though, I think maybe the turning point occurred in Venice in 1949. So I hope this story that I'm going to say makes sense. So she was engaged to sing the role at the Teatro La Fenice when Margarita Carosia, 
who was engaged to sing Elvira in Puritani in the same theater, fell ill. They were unable to find a replacement for her, so they told Collis that she would be singing for Elvira in six days. She protested because she did not, not only did not know this role, but she also had three more like of her other roles to sing. And he told her, I guarantee that you can. The quote said, the notion of any one singer embracing music as divergent in its vocal demands as both of these roles in the same career would have been cause enough for surprise. But to attempt to essay them both in the same season seemed like fully de grandeur. So basically, they're at the same theater. There's two shows going on. She's singing one show. The person who's the lead in the other show falls ill. So they're like, hey, you got to do this. But the roles are so different in vocal style that like usually you have to specifically train. Like you're training very differently to be these things, which also goes back to the different voice types with opera is when you're that type of singer, they train you differently to either have the stamina or just like sing that way. So the fact that she was performing these in the same season even was a really big deal because it's not like she had a whole like six months or whatever to train specifically for this role. But before the performance actually took place, there was a critic who actually (laughs) snorted that said, we hear that Serafin has agreed to conduct with a dramatic soprano. When can we expect a new edition of La Traviata with male baritone? So basically he's saying like, oh, they're going to put that voice role in here. Okay, so we're just going to have like a, a male take over this like big famous woman lead so basically it was unheard of but then a critic wrote after said even the most skeptical had to acknowledge the miracle that maria collis accomplished the flexibility of her limpid beautifully poised voice and her splendid high notes her interpretation also has a humanity warmth and expressiveness that one could search for in vain in the fragile pellucid coldness of the elviras and then someone else said what she did in venice was really incredible you need to be familiar with opera to realize the size of her achievement it was as if someone asked bridget nilsson who was famous for her great wagnerian voice to substitute overnight for Beverly Seals, who is one of the great coloratura sopranos of our time, which granted, I think that you also need to be in the opera world to even know that analogy at all. Thanks for that analogy that also has to do with opera. (laughs) Yeah, literally. (laughs) But basically, it was a big deal. This quote, out of all the many roles she undertook, it is doubtful if any had a more far-reaching effect. And I think it just goes to really show what her vocal capabilities were, that she was able just to like pull it out of a hat and just perform it so well i feel a little bad for the girl who got sick though i know (laughs) afterwards everyone's like wow what a miracle who knows maybe it's not that she was like better than the girl it was more of just like that it's incredible that she did it so well when that's not what she's supposed to do at least that's what i can hope for her i don't know (laughs) What's interesting, though, is reading through apparently her voice was pretty controversial, like it bothered others and thrilled and inspired other people. So it was almost like a taste thing. I wonder if there was just something so specific about her voice. It's either like you either loved it or you hated it, which I thought was really interesting. But some people say like the fact that she was so controversial, she had such an essential like ingredient for being a great singer which was an instantly recognizable voice like it's not like she just sounded like everyone else but there was this thing called the Kala's debate one critic said the timbre of Kala's voice considered purely a sound was essentially ugly it was a thick sound which gave the impression of dryness and adridity lacked those elements which in a singer's jargon are described as velvet and varnish so some people really did not like her other people loved it a lot so it's just funny i mean you heard all the quotes earlier about literally calling her god 
yeah. basically. So, but I think that's the thing. It's like when you have something so distinct that makes you so unique, people are going to just, they're going to love it or they're going to hate it. I'm trying to think of like a singer that has a really controversial voice. I thought of a little bit of like Miley Cyrus, where it's like she's a really good vocalist, but some people are like, it's too this. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but then she started singing rock music and mm-hmm. I haven't heard a single That's true. Since. Everyone was really like full on board after that. Because you can't know. listen to her rock and be like, she that can't sounds sing. bad. Yeah, like you're you're an she idiot. Kindly, can, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That's kind of a good question. Like, who is the modern equivalent? Yeah, yeah I don't know. But her as an artist, I think, was maybe more like not as up for debate. And that's, I think, what made her really stand out was the fact that she had obviously a great voice, but that she also like really was musical with it and really breathed art and acting into her performances. I loved this quote. It said, most mysterious among her many gifts, Callas had the genuine, the genius to translate the minute particulars of life into tone of voice. Another critic said, her secret is her ability to transfer the musical plane, the suffering of the character she plays, the nostalgic longing for lost happiness, the anxious fluctuation between hope and despair, between pride and supplication, between irony and generosity, which in the end dissolve into a superhuman inner pain. The most diverse and opposite of sentiments, cruel deceptions, ambitious desires, burning tenderness, grievous sacrifices, all the torments of the heart, acquire in her singing that mysterious truth. I would like to say that psychological sonority, which is the primary attraction of opera. Okay. So people who sung her praises. <laughs> yeah, they sang. They sang. They sang loud and clear. <laughs> Man, that makes me feel like I need to like go study some opera so i know I like i said this go watch it okay well i want to talk a little bit about the scandals but i want to talk about it at the end because i wanted the bulk of this episode to really be like this is how amazing she was but there was a rivalry the katie taylor or who are the big rivalries that we've had in the past like the, like the women versus know. women i guess last week I'm we talked about those. paramore versus avril so that's true it, it seems were, like every episode there's like a oh and they were compared to this or they were pitted against this woman so yeah it happened it here happens people just love to do that i know but i will say <laughs> these two women definitely egged it on in the press so in the early 1950s an alleged rivalry arose between Callas and Ramat, renata tabaldi who is an italian lyrico spinto soprano notice i did not say dramatic soprano she was a lyrico a lyrical soprano is very different. The contrast, though, was that Collis had a more often unconventional vocal quality, and Tabaldi's was a lot more, I think, typical for what they were expecting from opera. Okay. So I think maybe that's why they were pitted against each other, but it, this is what caused it. So in 1951, Tabaldi and Maria Collis were jointly booked for a vocal recite in Rio de Janeiro de janeiro in brazil the singers both agreed that neither would perform perform encores but tabaldi actually ended up taking two encores after maria had already performed which made maria very angry and this incident began the rivalry which reached a peak in the mid-1950s at times even engulfing the two women themselves who were said by the more fanatical followers to have engaged in virgil verbal barbs in each other's direction for example tabaldi was quoted as saying i have one thing callas that doesn't have a heart 
(laughs) And then Collins was quoted in Time magazine as saying that comparing her with Tabali was like comparing champagne to cognac, dot, 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 no, dot, 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 with Coca-Cola. Oh. (laughs) So, so I love it as like the alleged, (laughs) the alleged (laughs) rivalry when it's like they're publicly being like, well, she doesn't have a heart and I'm champagne and she's Coca-Cola. It's like, ooh, (laughs) nice. But... It's been pointed out afterwards that these two singers should never have been compared because, like I mentioned, they were just two very different vocal parts and most likely they didn't ever even perform the same roles. So it's not like they were like both singing the same things. They weren't direct competitors. Yes. Um, However, though, despite the mean things they said, they did also say very kind things about one another. Collas did once say, I admire Tabaldi's tone. It's beautiful. Also some beautiful phrasing. Sometimes I actually wish I had her voice. So maybe there was just some, you know, some difference here. I think some jealousy. There was another incident where Tabaldi asked him saying, hey, I need to learn this role. What's the best recording to help me learn it? So he recommended somebody else's version, even though Maria Callas had sung it. And the reason why he did it is because he knew that there was this rivalry. So he's like, that's going to be awkward if I say, hey, listen to your rival to, you know, get inspiration. But then a few days later, he went to go visit her only to find her sitting by the speakers, listening intently to Collis's recording. And she then looked at him and said, why didn't you tell me Maria's was the best? So it seems like they were able to give credit where credit was yeah. due. Collis actually would end up visiting Tabaldi after a performance at the Met in 1968. They were reunited. In 1978, Tabaldi spoke warmly of her late colleague and summarized this rivalry. She said, this rivality was really building from the people of the newspapers and the fans. But I think it was very good for both of us because the publicity was so big and it created a very big interest about me and Maria and was very good in the end. But I don't know why they put this kind of rivalry between the voice because the voice was very different. She was really something unusual. And I remember that I was a very young artist too. And I stayed near the radio every time that I know that there was something on radio by Maria. Which I like that she was like, yeah, well, I took advantage of the fact that they were pitting us against each other because it got us good press and it got people talking about us. But when it really came down to it, if she was on the radio, I was going to be listening because I looked up to her. And I think that's yeah. I think that's really cool that she was able to acknowledge that. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Like when someone's writing them, you know, you're going to ham it up a little. Yeah, you do it for the <laughs> drama. Do it for the press. No press is bad press. That's no what press they is bad say, press. Right? Apparently she had issues with her voice and vocal decline. I didn't really want to talk about it because I feel like that can be potentially triggering. But at a certain point in her career, she did lose a lot of weight. And some people think that that maybe affected her voice. Some people say Mm -hmm. it was for the better. Some people say that it was for the worse. It's kind of a weird thing that's up for debate. Like I said, I didn't really want to talk about her weight loss in the episode. I guess that was something that could dramatically affect your... Yeah, it's actually really really crazy how much actually can affect your voice basically though there's a lot of i don't want to say controversy but maybe debate of what happened to her voice some people think that because in 1946 and 1947 prior to her italian debut maybe at first she was taking on the wrong roles for her which i think Mm -hmm. goes back to like why voice types are important because it actually you know you choose your voice type based off of like what's gonna be you're able to do healthiest for the longest Some people said that maybe she was using her chest voice incorrectly or even like her unsteady high notes maybe could be something it. In his book, 
her first husband, Menegini, wrote that Callis suffered an unusually early onset of menopause, which could have affected her voice, which is something that actually another thing that affects your voice. Like if you're yeah, on your period gosh. versus when you're not on your period, like <laughs> if if How you're singing you a lot, time that? Y- you can't, which is just annoying. <laughs> there is a soprano actually named Carol Neblet who once said a woman sings with her ovaries. You're only as good as your hormones, which oh, sucks. Because yeah, because hormones are not reliable. They are not reliable at all. I wouldn't want all. to count on them at all for anything, actually. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Literally. Like I mentioned, some people think her weight loss helped her voice. Some people said it didn't because, I don't know, it was almost like she had a bigger body, maybe more support than maybe mm. when she lost weight. Or maybe she like lost too much weight too quickly or something like that. And then it is crazy how much your physical body can affect your voice. And that's something that... I mean, obviously, being a vocal pedagogy classes and having voice teachers who are like really passionate about health, they would drill into my brain. Oh. One of her f- close friends named Tito Gobi thought that her or Gobi thought that her vocal performance stemmed from her state of mind, saying that I don't think anything happened to her voice. I think she only lost confidence. She was at the top of the career that a human being could desire, and she felt enormous responsibility. She was obliged to give her best every night, and maybe she felt that she wasn't able anymore, and she lost confidence. And I think this was mm-hmm. the beginning of the end of her career. I'm sure that had an effect too. Yeah. Renee Fleming made a video kind of talking about the problems that maybe Maria Callas had with posture and breast support. And she said, I have a theory about what caused her vocal decline, but it's more from watching her sing than from listening. I really think it was her weight loss that was so dramatic and so quick, but it's not the weight loss per se. You know, there was others who lost a lot of weight and still sounded the same, but it if one loses the weight for support and then it's suddenly gone and one doesn't develop any another musculature for support, it can be very hard on the voice and you can't estimate the toil, the toll that emotional turmoil will take as well. I was told by somebody who knew her well that the way Collis held her arms to her solar plexus allowed her to push and create some kind of support. If she were a soubrette, which is again the vocal part, it would have never been an issue, but she was singing the most difficult repertoire, the stuff that requires the most stamina and the most strength. So... Gotcha. I think that's the thing. It's like, truthfully, like when you are singing and singing those notes, like you are like almost like pushing out your stomach. Like you are like using your abs. You are like fully engaging your body. And so I think her argument is like, if that suddenly changed, like your whole body composition too fast for you to like, you know, gradually get used to it. Suddenly the way that you were fully supporting yourself, it's, yeah. it's changes so quickly and so much. So then maybe you're not actually supporting your voice healthily anymore. No, that makes sense. Especially with like, rapid weight loss you yeah. lose muscle first mm-hmm. so you would lose a those lot. muscles that you need yeah. and if you're not like being really cautious and aware of that in the moment then yeah it, no it's something it they warn voice. about a lot with like people that are even trying to lose weight they're mm-hmm. like you've got to be really careful because you'll lose muscle first like, yeah and then yeah that can cause some problems for your body so i mean it's hard because like I know that she had a lot of body image issues and I think that's what drove her to choose to, you know, lose so much weight in the first place. And I mean, it's hard. Like, I don't want to talk about it too much. I know it can be a really triggering thing to talk about weight loss and I don't necessarily want to blame it on her vocal decline. There's a lot of potential reasons, but mm-hmm. you know, all in all, the message is be healthy and take care, no, not even be healthy. It's just, yeah, just you don't have to, yeah. And you don't have to make your body do things that yeah. your body doesn't think- want to do naturally. When people say, like, take care of yourself a lot of the times, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, eat healthy, exercise, yeah. all that. And it's like, no, just, like, make sure you're doing okay. <laughs> like, yeah, literally. You know? Like, that's what's like, most important. Yeah. You know, 
just make sure you're okay because that's the most important part not like how you look or anything just like you're good (laughs) yeah I fully agree with you I'm gonna talk a little bit more about her scandal she was kind of just like left out to dry by a lot of people and that happened a lot in the later half of her career there was a performance of Madame Butterfly in Chicago in 1955 where she was confronted by a process server who handed her papers about a lawsuit brought by someone who claimed he was her agent. She was actually photographed with her mouth turned in a furious snarl, and the photo was sent around the world and gave rise to the myth of Callis as a temperamental prima donna and a tigress. Trap her and take an unflattering photo? I know. If you were to look up, you have to post it on Instagram, like Maria Callis tigress picture. First off, if someone's suing you wrongfully, like you have every right to be angry, but they captured that moment when she was angry and they sent it out everywhere and everyone branded her as this horrible, difficult person to work with because of that photo. It's so gross. That's so mean. It's not even that unflattering of a photo. She looks it's like not she's unflattering. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like she's saying something and the guy in front of her looks smug. Yes. Yes, he does. In the same year, just before her debut at the Met, Time actually ran a damaging cover story about her. Oh, this is when the one was ran about her and her mother. Oh, I was like, Time did not want to leave her alone. No, true. But this is the one with the mother, (laughs) which I'm like, why did you do that before her Met? I mean, probably because it was drama. It would get people to read the paper, which is just gross. There was another situation in 1957 where she was starring at the Edinburgh International Festival. Her contract was actually for four performances, but due to the great success of the series, they decided to put on a fifth performance. She told the officials that she was physically exhausted and that she had already committed to a previous engagement that was actually going to be a party thrown for her by her friend in Venice. Despite Mm -hmm. this, though, they announced a fifth performance with her being billed as Amina, but she refused to stay and went on to Venice. Despite the fact that she had fulfilled her contract, she was accused of walking out on them and the festival and they and the officials did not defend her and or inform the press that the additional performance was not approved by her or a part of her contract That's in the first not place. Fair. I know. It's not fair at all. They're like, oh, but it serves us because everyone thinks you're a diva anyway. So. Uh-huh. so now you're the villain here. Another situation happened in January of 1958 where she was to open the Rome Opera House with actually Italy's president in attendance. The day before the opening night, she alerted the management that she was not well and that she should have a standby ready. And she was told that like no one can double you. Fair. I mean, but... yeah, that's true. <laughs> but after being treated by doctors, she felt better on the day of performance and decided to go ahead with the opera. And then there is actually a surviving recording of the first act and it reveals that she sounded really sick in that first act Mm -hmm. and feeling that her voice was slipping away she felt that she could not complete the performance and the show was canceled after the first act but she was accused of walking out on the president of italy in a fit of temperament and pandemonium actually broke out despite the fact that doctors confirmed that maria had bronchitis and tracheitis and the president's wife called to tell her that they knew she was sick but there were no statements made to the media and the endless stream of press coverage just aggravated the situation so that is so annoying literally the president's wife like calls marie herself and is like you're good we know you were sick doctors are saying like look she has two illnesses and no one stood up for her in the press and they just made it so much worse 
A newsreel actually included file footage from calls from the 1955 sounding well that had the footage of the rehearsals with the voiceover narration said, here she is in rehearsal sounding perfectly healthy. If you want to hear Callas, don't get all dressed up. Just go to rehearsal. She usually stays to the end of those. So then it became like the funny thing is like, oh, she's always ditching out of performances. So just go to her rehearsals. It's so mean. So that's just some of the scandals that unfortunately happened. And that's what was made her branded as a prima donna. But like it wasn't her fault. I think there are like certain accounts of her like being a very difficult woman or very opinionated or just very like. I don't even want to say, but but, but I hate that. I feel yeah. like those words are being put on people who are women who are strong and know what they want and demand respect. She demanded a lot of respect that was 100% like deserved. She's talented. So you and should respect her. she knew what to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's like anytime a woman isn't nice, they're like, oh, she's a prima donna. Exactly. And it's like, you don't have to be nice all the time to everyone, even when they're rude to you. Like, that's just being a doormat. Yeah, exactly. It's just so crazy that like the themes that we see now with like, oh, women being called difficult or drama. It's like this has been happening since the mid 20th century and before. I mean, we've covered so many women that all of these (laughs) things so perfectly relate to. Literally the the man by Taylor Swift running through my head. (laughs) If Maria Callas was a man, she would be the man. Yep. Truly. In 1969, the Italian filmmaker Pier Piallo Pasolini cast Collis in her only non-apparatic acting role as the Greek mythological character of Medea in his film by that name, Medea. Apparently, though, that production was grueling. And according to an account in Adrian's Callis, The Art and the Life, Callis is said to have fainted after a day of strenuous running back and forth on a mudflat oh. in the sun. And the film was not a commercial success, but it's her only film appearance and pretty much her only thing that she did off of a opera stage. So thought it would be cool to note. But in her later career, she did do master classes at Juilliard and different type of classes for other artists one more scandal that i'm gonna mention and then we will wrap up 1957 while she was still married to her husband giovanni minagini she was introduced to a greek shipping magnate aristotle onassis at a party given in her honor and then they had an affair (laughs) that received a lot of publicity in the press and then in november of 1959 she left her husband apparently onassis was not sure why callus largely abandoned her career but that he offered her a way out of a career that was made increasingly difficult by scandals and by vocal resources that were diminishing at an alarming rate franco um, Zephyrly, on the other hand, recalls asking Collis in 1963 why she not practiced. She had not practiced her singing. She responded that I have been trying to fulfill my life as a woman. According to her biographies, actually, she and Onassis had a child who was a boy who actually died just hours after he was born. Oh, but tragic. that's kind of up for debate. In her previous husband's book about his wife, he says that she was not able to bear children. What others say that there were birth certificates used to prove this secret child that were issued in 1998, 21 years after Callis' death. So maybe people wonder that Callis had at least one abortion while she was involved with Onassis. Like no one really knows what happened. She never ended up having a baby. I don't know what happened. Also, side note that it's weird that all these people in her life are writing books about her, like her ex-husband and her mom. (laughs) Yeah, what the heck? It's like the equivalent of like Britney Spears' sister writing a book about her, like trying to get the cash grab. Like it's just kind of gross like just leave her alone 
Yeah, I agree. 1966, Collis actually renounced her U.S. citizenship to facilitate the end of her marriage to Meneghini. Um, This is actually interesting because Greek law at the time was that a Greek could legally marry only in a Greek Orthodox church. She had married her previous husband in a Roman Catholic church. So she no longer was a U.S. citizen and was only Greek. It was almost like that marriage was void. Huh. Right? Interesting. But apparently that also helped her finances because she no longer had to pay U.S. taxes on her income. So it was probably just better for her to be Greek. What's crazy is the relationship with Aristotle Onassis ended two years later in 1968 because he left her. Get who he left her for. Jacqueline Kennedy. What? Yes. They got together after JFK died. Yes. Yeah. Uh Oh my gosh. It's the same one. That is so weird. Yes. <laughs> I was shocked. Yeah, shocked. Jackie Onassis. That would be it. That is it. Huh. Wow. Crazy. Like, world's colliding here. What's interesting is the Onassis fam- family's private secretary, Kiki, she wrote a memoir, too, which oh, everyone's just <laughs> writing course. books here. I know. <laughs> but she said that even while Aristotle was with Jackie, he frequently met with Maria in Paris, where they resumed their affair. Wow, cheating on Jackie. Very scandalous. But she spent her last years living largely in isolation in Paris. She died of a heart attack, actually, at the age of 53 on September 16th of 1977. I know, it really is so young. I want to end with this. So during a 1978 interview, upon being asked, was it worth it to Maria Callas? She was lonely, unhappy, an often difficult woman. A music critic and one of her good friends replied, that's such a difficult question. There are times, you know, when there are people, certain people who are blessed and cursed with an extraordinary gift in which the gift is almost greater than the human being. And Callas was one of those. It was almost as if her wishes, her life, her own happiness were all subservient to this incredible, incredible gift that she was given. This gift that reached out and taught us all, taught us things about music we knew very well, but showed us new things, things we never thought about, new possibilities. I think that's why singers admire her so. I think that's why conductors admire her so. I know that's why I admire her so. And she paid a tremendously difficult and expensive price for this career. I don't think she always understood what she did or why she did, but knew she had a tremendous effect on audiences and on people, but it was not something that she could always live with gracefully or happily. I once said to her, it must be very enviable to be Maria Callas. And she said, no, it's a very terrible thing to be Maria Callas because it's a question of trying to understand something you can never really understand because she couldn't explain what she did. It was all done by instinct. It was something incredibly embedded deep within her. Hmm which I think was a really powerful quote. And, you know, she really just did have an amazing, incredible talent. And she chose to share that with the world and paid, I think, personal prices for that, mental prices for that. But she really is incredible. Like if you listen to her sing, it's just very, very evident that like she's incredible. It's an amazing voice. So do you agree with the idea that some people's gifts go beyond their own needs or wants i don't know i don't think yeah, I so don't either i'm like i was thinking about it i'm like interesting like i feel like a lot of people would probably feel that way about quite a few people's contributions that's true i think that maria callis was failed by the people around her yeah like but it shouldn't have had to be that way if someone has mm-hmm. a great enough gift that the whole world is in awe then shouldn't the world be in awe yeah yeah and take care of them be take care of that yeah i i agree i don't necessarily 
love that notion. I think that people think that sounds romantic of like, yeah, oh, like, like the talent yeah, is, is bigger than them. And it kind of goes into like the starving artist trope that we talk about yeah. a lot, like really not liking is it's just like something like, oh, like the art is just so, you know, it's like unworldly. It's, you know, it makes you believe in God. It's so good. Yeah. But that yeah. actually like sometimes makes me sick because people are like, oh, you know, like Van Gogh wouldn't have been who he was without his crippling depression that led him to yeah. suicide. And it's like, really? Because I think he just would have been able to paint for a lot longer. That's true. <laughs> he would have just lived longer and still been able to make beautiful yeah. art. Like, I don't think we have to romanticize it like that. And then it's like, oh, her talent was bigger than herself. It's like, well, you can't have the talent without the person. Yeah. I think people love so, to romanticize tragedy and art and yeah. tortured artists a little bit too much. Yeah. We haven't talked about that in a while, but... Yeah. But there's the life of Maria, our first opera singer that we've had the pleasure to cover. Um, it was so fun to learn about her. And like I said, I really feel like I only touched the iceberg as far as everything we could cover. There were so many roles, but at a certain point yeah. I would just be listing off everything and they were all in German or Italian. It was not going to be good <laughs> if I if I did that. So We just sit here to listen to you list off every role she participated in <laughs> with our american accents it would have been a disaster for everyone involved great. but anyways thank you for being here and for listening i hope you feel inspired by her story i hope you're left thinking about a couple things i think there's so much to learn for her story that Definitely. just ties in directly to modern parallels as we find over and over and if this is your first time listening to us we have so many other episodes with so many other women that you can check out so do that and follow us at morethanamuse.podcast because we'll definitely be posting clips and videos and you definitely don't want to miss that. So definitely. go check it out. Do you want to know a fun fact? Yes, I do. I was looking through pictures after you had me look up the tigress photo. Okay. And I found a photo of Maria Callas standing next to Marilyn Monroe. Whoa. And guess what dress Marilyn Monroe is wearing? The dress? The dress that Kim Kardashian wore to the Met Gala. So that means Maria Callas was there for happy birthday, Mr. President, which is crazy because mm -hmm. the man that she had an affair with ends up marrying his right. wife. Whoa, this is connected. That is a elaborate little web. Because then also Marilyn Monroe was allegedly having an affair with, with John F. Kennedy. <gasps> Whoa, the web so. is being spun. Yes. Very interesting. Anyway, thought that was kind of cool. I was like, wait, I know that dress. Like, and that is like, that, that is, is the dress. dress. <laughs> yeah, the diamond dress. Oh my so. gosh. We do have an episode about the Hollywood starlets and yes. Marilyn Monroe. So we you can do. check that out. All right, well, join us next Monday. We will be back with another More Than Amused topic. And I'm excited. Me too.